Good morning. Grace and peace that brings comfort and joy is always ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great statement, huh? Amen. Today when I preach to you about the wisdom of Christ's works, I just want to remind you that I preach to myself as much to you. This thing about learning the true nature of peace in relationships is a lifelong project. And we can get it in one era, we can get it straight, and then we can forget and fall off the wagon and not be a part of peace again. And so that's why hearing it again from James chapter 3 is a very refreshing thing, like coming back for another drink of water. How do you feel when people you love are fighting? Little kids, how do you feel when you see mom and dad arguing? Or grandmas, how do you feel when your adult children are hardly speaking to one another? How do you feel when you know there's chaos in relationships at your church? Or family get-togethers are more stressful than giving strength and peace the way they're supposed to. It hurts, doesn't it? It's hard. It's not good. Well, you take that feeling and you multiply it times a hundred, and you know how God feels when his people are back-to-back with arms folded, not at peace with one another. They're not getting along. Do you remember what Jesus said the night before he died? He knows he's leaving. He knows he won't really be walking the earth with them again. He said 31 times he talked about love and he said in John 13 that night, love each other as I have loved you. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The devil heard that. He, heard, he hears all the words of God and he made that his goal was to embarrass the gospel of Christ By making God's families and God's churches and God's people, he tries to make us people of selfishness and chaos. And one of the things that we want to pay attention to today is that God is giving us a breath of fresh air through his word to get rid of the smoke screens that the devil tries to lay over our hearts by tempting us the way he tempted Adam and Eve and to deal with it the right way so we can live in the peace that Christ brings. It really works. It's wisdom from God. Someone who understood it, he wasn't just inspired to write it, but he understood it, was Jesus' brother, James. You know, Jesus' family had problems. They all thought he was crazy, and they tried to come get him once, right? Uh, Somehow, they weren't all taking care of Mary, because at the cross, Jesus tells his cousin John to take her into his home. They had their problems. And James was Jesus' own brother, flesh and blood from from Mary. And he wrote the first writing inspired by God for the New Testament, the book called, the letter called James, to the early Christians that had been dispersed. And the early church had people in it, therefore they had relationship problems. They had stress, just like we do. Nobody's immune to it. And so James, inspired by God, In chapter 3 and 4, and in particular these verses before us, he gives us a secret to learning how to live in peace, learning how to live selfless. Listen carefully for what James says is the real issue whenever you are not in a good place with somebody. 
Notice how I said that. Whenever you are not in a good place with somebody. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. I don't know anybody that boasts about having envy. He says don't boast about it or lie against the truth. He's not saying we'd boast about having envy. He'd say we'd actually hide our envy under boasting about being right. I know I'm right. And so I have to fight for my rights while I'm right. You have to look out for number one. We're all born that way. It's so normal we think it's good. But it's not. We're born addicted to our self-preservation, our self-advancement, our self-protection. We want the best for us and our besties and our peeps. That's what we want. We think that's what way it ought to be. And so we'll fight vehemently for it and we'll end up in a bad place. That's what James says. It's so normal, but it's earthly. He said it's unspiritual. Some translations will translate that word sensual, and that's a good translation too. It feels deep in the person's heart like this is the right thing to do to be part of this argument, this debate, whatever it is. It satisfies a craving to be justified in the eyes of that other person, to be declared right. You can hear it in the voice when someone calls out for help to a counselor or pastor. I've got a litany of complaints about so-and-so, and I need to come in so you can support my viewpoint so they'll know that I'm right. They would never say it that way, but it's sometimes the golden thread through the call. It's okay. I feel the same way often. That's why I said I'm preaching to myself. We've got to get at it. What does James say to get at it? It's demonic. <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, the devil shows up in big stories like Adam and Eve and Job and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But otherwise, it's all psychological problems that we have, right? James says no. He said this kind of selfish ambition and envy that shows itself selfishness in a relationship is demonic. It is the root sin, selfishness that the devil plays with. With the human heart that's so affected by selfishness. It is demonic. And it, you can watch demons dance and laugh, it seems, at churches and families and individuals who their life is a string of chaotic arguments and debates and, and chaos. That's why James says, I want to help you see it. Because it's hiding under your heart and you, you try to hide it from yourself that you're being selfish. And he says, I'm going to tell you a symptom Wherever there is selfish ambition and envy, last verse of the first section, he says there is what? Disorder and every evil practice. Disorder, chaos. I'm going to go back. Let's see, I've been married 30. Let's, I better not mess this up in front of everybody, in front of Mary. We married in 1985, so it's 88, 32 plus years. First week of marriage, little apartment on Fluke Street, 
right? We were raised by good parents, stayed together their whole marriages and lives, but we're sinners, right? Trying to figure out how to do, do the dance now that we're living under the same roof. I don't know if you figured out, but I can be spontaneous to my credit and sometimes to my demise. We're having a debate in the kitchen. I've got a glass of Sprite with ice in it. I don't remember what we're debating about. I just remember the chaos. (laughs) You don't. You weren't there. Took a big drink of Sprite. She was in the middle of a sentence, and I thought, I wonder how it would level the playing field if I just spewed this out. I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I think it's a good point about chaos. So with a twinkle in my eye and a smile on my face, I went, now you know her. Where is she? She picked up the glass that was right there on the counter. I thought I was going to get away with it. Threw the whole glass on me. Walked out of the kitchen, said, clean it up. Chaos. (laughs) Right there, I thought, well, that doesn't work in marriage. (laughs) That one backfired with this woman. Not going to pass muster ever again. I wanted to tell you that because it's an example and it's humorous, but you, you know that there's chaos that's a lot more acidic, right? And it happens in our lives and our relationships. We're all capable of it, and it's demonic. And when you see that chaos happening in a family, in a, in a church, and wherever you are, work, whatever it is, you know the word of God has spoken to your heart today that the, the devil is at foot. He's working and he's playing off of what sin? Selfish ambition or selfishness. It's the root sin. The world revolves around me. And what James is trying to do, and he says it actually in the next chapter, but I don't get to preach that today. He says, mourn, be sorrowful, deal with it. Come to grips with it. Let God confront you. You are selfish. That's why you're part of this conflict and this chaos. And repent of it. That's what he's saying. That's why he says it's demonic and it's disorder. When you apologize to God in your heart, what does he do? Well, it's about time. But it's too late. You've already wrecked everything. And there's no hope for you and anybody else around you. No, he doesn't talk that way. That's the devil still talking because he doesn't like it that Jesus is now confronting you to heal it. Jesus says, I forgive you. It's washed away. It's just as if you never did it. You can stand up and tell the story like I did, but knowing that you're completely forgiven and it's washed away. And you can now run toward people you used to run away from and love them. And, and then this is what James does. He says, this is what that love looks like. And that's the next section. Look at the, before we look at that section, look at this little mountain stream on the screen. Don't you just love pictures like that? I do. That's why I put it up there. It's peaceful and pure. Uh, it makes you feel calm. And we think, man, if I could just sit by that without the people that bug me the rest of my life, I'd be great. But actually, I put it up there to say, that's the kind of thing that God wants to bring in your heart, in your relationships, so that you don't need to sit by that stream to feel that kind of peace and purity, because it's pure and calm. And that's the, that's the two first words that James uses to say, this is what I give you. After I take away your selfishness, this is what God gives you. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving. 
What does that pure mean? It means it's not mixed with selfishness. I mean, if you've ever thought it or said it, what I'm about to say, I just want you to put your hand up quick and then down. Part of me wants to, and then part of me doesn't want to. Yeah. Well, that part of you that wants to do something wrong or selfish is wrong. It's sinful, right? It's in, you have impure motives. That's why we, but it's real to us, right? The wisdom that comes from above is pure. It's without two motives. It's got one, love for the other person. Love for the other person. It's easy to love yourself. Everybody does it. But it's God's spirit that makes you love other people and want to seek out their best interests. So it's first of all pure to love the other person. Secondly, it's peace-loving, which is what purity or pure love does. It goes like this. When you're filled with the love of Christ, you want to win others over to a relationship with you. You don't want to win over others to get what you think you need or want. You want to win them over to a healthy relationship. You don't want to win over them. They're not someone in your way. There's someone along your way with you to love. You're peace-loving, and peace is the main thing. Real fast, quick example. Last night, playing a, a dice game with the grandsons, Mary and I, two grandsons, left, right, center. You ever played that? It's new, kind of new to me, anyway. Okay, you roll the dice, and you got little chips, and if it says left or right, you got to give chips away to the person left or right. The... the uh, the losses are fast and personal and, <laughs> and meaningful, and the game goes pretty quickly, which is good. It's not like Candyland that goes on forever, <laughs> and you just about to finish, and then you get sent back to Lollipop Land or something. No, you can finish this game. So we're at the end of the game, and uh, one of the, the grandsons had been way ahead, and suddenly all his chips were out in the middle, and there was two chips left, and I had them, and so really I kind of won the game. But, you, you know, to be ahead the whole game and then to lose is kind of a big loss. So we decided to keep playing a little bit longer. And then he ended up with both those chips and ended up winning the game. And he got the message. You know what he said at the end? We have two winners. We were at peace. Right? Another time he rolled the dice earlier and... Uh, None of us, we were all waiting for him to like roll the dice so we got his chips. And the dice rolled so that nobody got his chips. And he said, oh, everybody's disappointed. <laughs> that was pretty cool. But me. What I'm trying to say is, you can, I'll, I'll, I'll be real crass. You can tell a family that doesn't get it about selfish ambition when they're more interested in winning the game than winning at life with each other. And games end up with a fight and an argument and throwing toys and whatever. We've got, we've got work to do, right? The bigger games for us adults are our weddings, our gatherings, our baptismal parties, whatever they are. They become the games where we feel like there are winners and losers. Where someone makes a terrible comment that they shouldn't have made and we keep record of wrongs and we make them pay for it emotionally for years. We don't get it then, do we? Rather than wanting to win each other over with pure motives of love and peace and forgiveness, we just want to win. And by George, it felt like they won when they said that or did that, and we don't like it. And we're going to let the world in the family know that we don't like it. 
The quicker you get over that little pouting, the quicker you get back to peace and love, the quicker you understand the wisdom of Christ that works. That man had a family and a bunch of disciples that let him down left and right, and he was the constant in all of those relationships because he had pure love. And he brings that to you and me. It's first of all pure and then peaceful, peace-loving, and then he has some follow-up words to put some flesh on the bones. It's considerate. Considerate means to consider the other person. It means to watch our tone in a conversation. It means to not mock each other. It means to let someone finish their sentence and their thought without trying to formulate your response. It means being considerate of their presence and their needs for being helped. It means men, when she comes in with the first grocery bag and you know there's 15 more in the car... You pause the TV, you miss the play, football season's coming, or whatever it is, and you be considerate enough to get out there and help bring those groceries in. It means to fix flats and to make sure uh, dinner is ready. It means helping each other with our clothes. It means all those things. It means to be considerate. And the next word is submissive. Submissive is, I'm going to let you have your way because it makes you happy and I don't. I, I I want to do that. I had an uncle. We were go. We went up there for vacation in Albuquerque every summer. Who could not stand it? Drove him crazy to hear people crunch ice. I remember my mom saying we were driving into Albuquerque every year. Remember, Uncle Alan does not do well if you crunch your ice. So he'd be around the table, and I'd be. Rawr, rawr, rawr. That's just something I do for a living is crunch ice, and my mom would just look at me like that. And it's like, submit, do not crunch ice, it drives him crazy. Submission is learning to put up with each other's pet peeves, right? It may be the way the towel is supposed to be folded or the toilet paper on the roll. It might be dirty clothes, it might be the lawn, it might be shoes in the house, whatever it is. It's submissive because it cares about other people. That's wisdom. That's not foolishness, that's wisdom. And it's impartial and sincere And this is what happens. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to take up full of mercy. Mercy is not trying to get even in a relationship, but freely forgiving. So we have this little game in our marriage that's gone on for 32 years. It's about once a year, so maybe it's happened 32 times. When the other one's enjoying a nice hot shower, we sometimes throw a cup of cold water over the top. Or maybe, you're not laughing, a little more. Now, Mary, for, full of mercy means just because I was the last one to do that, you don't get even, ever. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Full of mercy means don't try to get even with people. There is no score, right? And if you're not keeping score, then how can you get even, right? Uh, that's, that's what we need to hear when James says it's full of mercy in a relationship. Uh, you can see it in a couple when one is passing. Uh, you can see there's a person lying there in the bed that the one who's standing there knows of all the people on the whole planet, the person they're about to lose has forgiven them the most. They know them well. They've endured all of their the one standing's sins, but they have forgiven them the most. They've never been forgiven like one. You grow old together like that, and you learn you've been forgiven for years of sins. They've never been forgiven like that before by anyone. So deep, so knowledgeable, so real. 
It's a beautiful thing. And we want that kind of sense, so, something so wonderful in our church, in our families, in our couples, that there is a huge sense of loss of the mercy of God that was shown to us in a person when we lose them because they were so merciful. That's what James says is wisdom. And you might hear all this and go, oh, I've tried that stuff. It just doesn't seem to work. Fooey on that statement. It does work. You know why? Because God says it does, first of all. But secondly, it works to bring that feeling of tranquility because it comes in time as the good deed works on the heart and minds of people are just like you that have to mull it over for a while. The, the last verse is talking about mulling it over. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's a beautiful picture that has to do with planting. Some of you do that with a garden or a, a flower plant. You put a seed in the ground, you put dirt over it, and it's hidden. You don't see it anymore. And act, any of these acts of mercy that are found in this, this text that God's talking about, they are seeds you plant in the ground, and when they're done, life covers them over. And just because you don't see an immediate response doesn't mean it's not working. That's the whole point of the idea of sowing in peace, reaping a harvest of righteousness. There's a gap of time. And good counselors will tell you that it takes time. You cannot expect an immediate result. What happens is, is we lose faith that it works because it didn't give us an immediate result because we're in a microwave, instant text, information at your fingertips, right? Society, we think people are the same way and they can just respond immediately. No, they need to mull it over. It needs to work on them that you're actually really considerate now really loving, really kind and caring for them. And then that reaps a harvest in due time when the plant's full grown and it's a harvest of rightness, of God's righteousness and peace. But it takes faith in the word of God while you're waiting, while it's growing from a seed up. But in time, you'll reap it. And you can see it in couples and in families and in people groups and churches. That, that we're living through the, the harvest of a righteousness that was sown for a very long time. Last Sunday, we said goodbye to a 20-something vicar that we've had. There was a lot of love and smiles and laughter and appreciation and hugs. After we were done, one of our newer members said, you have a loving, we have a loving church here, a loving group of people, and it's really beautiful to watch. And then this, this week, I'm meditating on this text to bring it to you. That's a peaceful fruit of righteousness that you can see in a church where we've worked hard at grace and forgiveness being the main thing rather than rules or getting in line or conformity or, or, or who's right and who's wrong, right? It's the grace and mercy of Christ at work. Are we perfect? No, but we're peaceful. And we know how to work through our imperfections together because this is how it happens. There's Jesus. He's talking to a woman. Do you remember what Bible story that is? We just, we just call it what? The woman at the well, right? There's no other story about Jesus talking to a woman at a well. It's in John 4, and it's the most beautiful story of restoration. 
Jesus comes to the Samaritan well. He needs water. And a woman comes out in the heat of the day because she's not really the, the most favorite in town. She has a string of stream behind her of broken relationships. Five bad marriages. And she has viewed herself as the victim and that she's right. And that's just a whole bunch of bad men out there. And yet she's actually her own problem. But Jesus didn't come just to tell her that. He comes to get her back, to restore her, to help her, because he loves all of us. And he takes her from the wisdom that she thought she was so smart that she was not the problem, all the way through in a conversation to believing she is released from her being the problem, and she's forgiven and loved. And the people that she ran from in town, she gets up and runs toward, and she's completely transparent, and she says, this man showed me everything I ever did. It doesn't say he did that. He didn't have time to do that. He just told her he knew she'd had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. And he said, you're way off. You're not worshiping God in the spirit and in truth. And God was looking for people who'll be honest, not lie, like James said in our text, not lie against the truth. You have selfish ambition, and it's been driving your life chaotic and crazy, and I came to bring you peace and love, and I'm your Messiah, and here I am. And she said, oh, wash me, cleanse me. Most people had written her off, and Jesus did not. And she ran to town toward the people she had once run from, and she was peaceful for probably the first time in a really long time. Now, why did I bring that up? What happened to her at that well happens to us as a church individuals and as a group when we focus on letting God's word confront us, forgive us, and set us back up in love. And that's what we do all the time. Why do I say that now at the end? Because I want you to not experience the peace of a Christian church, but leave this sanctuary and live in chaos in your home or your life. Practice the same honesty, the same faith, the same belief that you're forgiven and so are the people you contend with and live in the peace of the gospel. It crushes selfish ambition and then it brings people together in peaceful relationships. Let the gospel work. Amen.